Hi Flop fam, before we begin today's episode of Flop Head Talk, we want to provide you with a content warning. This episode contains discussions around sensitive and potentially triggering topics including euthanasia, animal cruelty and abuse, graphic and medical content, mental and emotional health, and mention of suicide. We understand that these topics can be difficult to hear and may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel overwhelmed or uncomfortable at any point during this episode, we encourage you to take a break, reach out for support, or stop listening. We want to also remind you that if you or someone you know is struggling with mental health or has thoughts of suicide, there is help available. In the show notes, we will include resources for you to access support. Our goal is to create a safe and respectful space for all our listeners. Thank you for your understanding and your ongoing support. And without further ado, let's start the show. Welcome everybody to another Flophead Talk. Uh, today I'm sitting down with Marisda from the Delta Project SA and she's going to tell us a little bit more about what she does, uh, who she is and a whole bunch of um, info regarding some animals uh, which we are all here for so here we go. Uh, Marisa, thank you so much for agreeing to sit down with me on such short notice. Um, yeah, welcome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, all the jazz. Thank you, Ilna. Uh, yeah, I am Marista Kruger and I am a qualified veterinary nurse. That is my baseline for animals. But uh, as soon as I qualified as a nurse, I went straight into animal welfare. So uh, a large portion of it was spent in law enforcement. So within the SPCA, within the NSPCA. Oh, wow. um, and after that, I then moved into uh what I call the gentler path, uh, where I worked as an ICU nurse, uh, veterinary nurse, um, for trauma patients. So um, more into the healing side of stuff, but very much mainstream healing uh, within the industry, the veterinary industry. Um, and then uh, moved was moved back into an equine setup where I then did some equine nursing. Um, and then did a full circle back into animal welfare, which is where I am now. Uh, but yeah, that is a 25-year trip within animal welfare. Oh my goodness. Like, and, and it's still what you want to do when you grow up? <laughs> 100%. Um, I, I knew when I was eight years old that this was the path. And I try to run away from it all the time. All the time. I'm like, no, no. I think what I want to be is a rep. Um, but I'm really not very good at looking away, and therein lies the problem. So, yeah, animal welfare is what it is, I think. Yeah, for sure. I think that's also why I'm also sitting here today. And so goals align and people meet each other. <laughs> um, that's incredible. So animal welfare, right? Okay, so when I think of animal welfare, you know, you think charity, you know, SPCA, um, and that's that's what that is. Can you tell me a little bit more right, on the, the, the scope of welfare that the Delta Project is on at the moment? Yeah, so the Delta Project really was created because of uh, intrinsic need within animal welfare to collaborate. Yeah. Because people who are in, I, I suppose, all welfare, but animal welfare more so, are driven by passion. It's a passion-driven calling. And unfortunately, when you're passionate, you are focused on what is happening in your immediate 
surroundings. So people within animal welfare compete for funds, compete for publicity, com compete for everything. And in that process, animals fall through the cracks. That's the main thing. There's, there's, there's a feeling of uh, not enough. So yeah. you won't let your neighboring SPCA fundraise within your area because that'll take money away from you. And it's, it's a false perception. It, it's a poverty mentality that lives with, within animal welfare. So the Delta project really was or is designed to get collaboration so that welfare organizations can realize that we can do more together. When you try and do it by yourself, you have to keep reinventing the wheel over and over and over. But if you hold hands with the people next door, and, and look, we don't agree. We don't agree on anything because we have the SPCA that is perceived to kill everything. Then we have the no-kills, which are perceived to warehouse everything. You know, So there's no balance because all of these things uh, come from a place of passion and from a place of caring. Yeah, the baseline is all about the animals again. It's just executed differently. And because we're not talking about a filing system, you know, if somebody changes your filing system, you're like, yeah, sure, you know, put apple under F for fruit. It really doesn't matter to you. <laughs> but when you are, when you're passionate about something, you believe that what you're doing is the only way. And I think that is what the Delta Project is aiming to change to see, because I think when people meet each other on a, uh, on a, on, on a human to human basis, where we're not fighting, where we're, we, we've, we've got to rescue something and now there's three organizations on site and there's no money to be made. So nobody has to be the person pulling the dog out of the drain so that the newspaper gets their photo. Then more animals get saved. Get saved. Yeah, for sure. Because it's at the end of the day, it's like you have to get back to that humanity of it. Because okay, cool that you're making money off of it, and you have these amazing facilities to 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 show off to your donors. But what about the animals? What is happening to them with them um, because of what you're doing? Um, and I think, like you say, if we all just stop pointing at each other and going, "No, but you can't do that because I have to do this," or "You do that because I don't want to do that." we have to look, okay, why are we doing this? And just walk together in, in, in it because that's the only way that we're going to be able to actually make a difference. Yeah. Absolutely. And the thing is, there are horses for courses. So let people do what they are good at. Don't try and rehabilitate a dog in your backyard. I mean, that is one of my, my biggest things is rescuing animals from the rescuers all the time it doesn't come from a place of bad it comes from a place of caring but a place of fear that if i allow somebody else to help this animal i won't get the 50 bucks that's going to help me rate you know save the next one yeah. uh, so it's, it's a long process and i think it's something that needs to be built on on trust and we can only trust each other when we've watched each other work. So it's easy to stand on the sideline and say, don't send the dog to the SPCA. They're just going to kill it. Yes, they are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that but is you know what, how controversially the most humane thing to do in that situation because it's not about your feelings about that animal. It is what is happening and what is the best for the animal. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, I always, I mean, the SPCA... Uh, it's a tough place to be because I promise you, people don't join the SPCA because they think, oh, 
now there's a good place where I can go and kill some animals. That's not how it works. People go there because they want to help. And ultimately, they end up helping by dropping the, the, the animal population, which is awful. And it's awful for them. But it's easy for the person who's sitting in the, in the no-kill who can say, sorry, we are full. But what would yeah. happen if the SPCA said, sorry, we are full? What would happen? Animals would die in the streets. They would starve. Um, and people don't want to talk about that. They, they, they don't want to talk about that. Uh, and it's sad because I think if an animal can be rescued, it should be rescued. It be. But I think if there is yeah. no long-term solution for it, then where? What do you do with that? So, yeah, it, it's about trust. And I think that that's very broken within animal welfare. So is the Delta Project kind of like this trust-building exercise organization for these for these different so, rescues? So what it is, is I try to... So, so what we focus on is sterilizations because that's how you prevent euthanasia. That's the bottom line. If we drop the numbers, everything that doesn't get born doesn't have to be euthanized. So, um, and through that, what I do is I like to have an SPCA involved I like to have a variety of no-kill shelters involved. I would like to have veterinary practices involved because then we can move forward because they all bring value. And I think when people work with the inspector at the SPCA and they realize she cries when she euthanizes, it changes. It changes for them how they perceive the killing. So that's the one side of it. The other side of it is the SPCA gets, they get desensitized because they do. They're killing 30, 40 animals a day. It's hard. And, and the way they do it is they work into a situation where we say, oh, it's a euthanasia. And so for me, I, I have a big problem with the word euthanasia, uh, which is very controversial within the SPCA. The bottom line, the animal is dead. It is killed. You are killing it. And you need to know that every time you do it, you are killing it. Because euthanasia becomes like a, it's like humane slaughter. You know, really, it would rather not be dead. But people it eat is meat, what it so is. we have to. But just call it what it is. So the animal gets killed and we eat it. We try and do it as nicely as possible. But euthanasia for me, I think the only time euthanasia is in place is when an owner is taking their... 15-year-old dog to the vet and the whole family is sitting there and the dog has renal failure and they make a decision. That's euthanasia. That comes from a place of, I don't know, compassion and caring and understanding and Kindness. it's different than having to clear out kennels. And I'm not saying it's not necessary. It absolutely is necessary. And if the SPCA stopped existing, animal welfare in this country would be an absolute shambles. But there needs to be an understanding that we can't just all live in our silo and pretend that we're the only people who can do the right thing. Animals that mm, can yeah. be helped should be helped. And ones that can't be helped should be euthanized. They should not be warehoused. And that's what it is. So, yeah, so you yeah. saving the people. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, it, it also, you know, the, 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 the buzzword, oh, it's all about the animals. They all say that. But it really isn't. Mm. It's all about survival within your own organization because you need the publicity you need the the thing and, and that's why the delta project is not an npo i don't take donations because i don't need to compete with everybody else 
and also there's enough. So people give me stuff, absolutely. But not because I'm begging. It's because they see... And not because they can get something in return. It's because no. it's out of the goodness of their hearts. Like, you give this yeah. to me, you're probably not going to get anything back from it, but it will be yeah. used for the good that we're doing. I'll put it into an animal somewhere. And and that, that's how it is. So, yeah, so we run projects. Um, and, I mean, all kinds of things. But at the moment, mostly sterilizations. And in September, we did the big spay timber thing where we did a 1,000, I think... The Delta Project did a 1,400 and some odd sterilizations for the month of September. And it was a huge competition and it was backed by Let's Pay SA, which is an amazing movement where they are getting, uh, they pay for sterilizations. Basically, they fundraise and they pay, for, they pay for sterilizations. So what Delta tries to do is try to negotiate with vets to get cheaper sterilizations. Because the reality is people can't pay. 2,000 Rand to get their Budbul spade. Um, yeah, but if no, you can bring insane. that down to 500, then people will. And then the big problem gets smaller. But it takes everybody. It, 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 you can't do it in a silo. But that's an insane amount of sterilizations. Well yeah. done. Yeah. Good Crazy news. stuff. And that's only because the community pulled together and every single person involved said yes to this Absolutely. completely selfless thing. <clears throat> no gain involved except this dog will live a good life. Absolutely. And, and what happened there is it was run from an SPCA. And for the first time, uh, no-kill organizations were bringing their animals to an SPCA, <laughs> having it sterilized and getting them back and seeing that there's this process and also the SPCA is looking at the animals that are arriving and thinking okay these animals are in good condition these people care and do we agree on everything no but we agree that we need to sterilize so let's focus on that and it was yeah, it was we don't need to agree condition. on the same thing to, yeah. to do the right thing exactly exactly hey flop fam are you looking for unique handmade accessories for your furry friends let me tell you about Rain and Rose Boutique. Inspired by Cristela and their three rescue babies Luna, Rain and Indigo, Rain and Rose creates modern bohemian accessories for you, your home and your pets. From bespoke bandanas and bow ties to macrame collars and toys, each item is handmade to order with hand-picked or specially designed fabrics. The stock is limited so don't miss out on the chance to treat your pet to something special. Uh, you can find them on Instagram at Rain and Rose Boutique. That's R A Y N E A N D R O S E, Rain and Rose. You can also head over to their website, which is rainandrose.co.za. Place your order today and your pet will thank you for it. Also, if you're listening to this in March, we do have a Rain and Rose giveaway over on Instagram. You can check it out on Rain and Rose's Instagram or on Finny Boy's Instagram. They're all linked in the description. And you can stand a chance to win a 450 Rand voucher for Rain and Rose. Oh my goodness. Check it out. So it's insane. I'm trying to picture it, but it's it's a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it was crazy. It it was very, very and, and what was great is that the Let's Pay SA movement had sponsored a trip to Mauritius for the organization that um sterilize the most animals. So there was such a drive and a Facebook drive and, and such camaraderie because everybody was in competition, but, but yeah, not. But it was the, fun. The winner was, was getting a trip. 
but there wasn't money there wasn't nobody had to compete mm. you had to just bring your animals the vets had to spay as fast as they could and yeah a huge impact and i think for september with all the organizations that and it was a national thing the let's spay sa uh, movement i think they they did more than 2000 sterilizations 2000. in september uh, and that's obviously, I mean, all the other sterilizations in the world were still going on, but the ones that had entered the competition, over 2,000. So, yeah. Two, I'm sorry, I just want to do the math here. 2,000 divided by, that's 66.66, you're eating, let's say 67, 67 dogs a day. Yes, if you work every same. day. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the thing is also the, people always think, you know, your, your bottleneck is with the vet. It's really not for the vet. It's actually finding the animals because the first week you've got like 50 a day, 50 a day. Then everybody has spayed everybody's dogs that they know. <laughs> now they're going to start digging. Um, and then the numbers become smaller that are brought in because you can't actually find those dogs. Um, so it, it was a very good exercise because we've always thought that, you know, the vets are the limiting factor. You know, they can only do X amount. But if you give the vet the right incentive. Turns out they can do a hell of a lot more than what you think. Especially a trip to Mauritius. I think that's incentive enough for anybody to do anything. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. No, and, and what you say is also really true. I think the radiuses um, of service for organizations as well becomes limiting into how much they can do because you know how far do you go out of if you are situated in midrand how do you go to alberton do you go to how far is your radius of service which you can afford and what you are being able to where can you do the most good so like a lot of people oh we'll just do this neighborhood and this neighborhood and this neighborhood but the outlying areas i think don't get serviced as much and i think based on you know obviously initiatives in the past like that is also where a lot of the problems lie um correct me if i'm wrong but i think like the, the lack of service in those areas is a big contribution to the the state of animals in vet practices and in spcas and just what we're finding yeah look i i think the problem is it, it's also it's a balancing thing because you've got to get bang for your buck so driving out 100 kilometers to bring back 10 dogs when you could have done 20 at home base. You know, you've got to weigh that up. Um, and I think that is often a problem with, within welfare, that wealthy spread themselves too thin. So you can't fix everything. You need to sit down and, and realize that you cannot save everything. Um, you can do what you can do. So for me personally, I think you need to work your little area. area. Clear your backyard. Um, and then do an initiative, say once a year, we're going to go to some place, Port Nolith, where the closest vet is 300 kilometers away. Absolutely. But then again, you're looking at bang for your buck. If you're going to go there, you want to do 100 animals because, and you mm -hmm. want to, while you're there, put everything, to get everything off chains, uh, distribute food, make it worthwhile. And that is something that cannot be done by individual organizations. You need to collaborate no. with the local vets. You need to collaborate with the food companies, um, the local chief in the area, the church. All of that collaboration then gives you bang for your buck. It's the people. And it's not, it's not you look at these organizations and go, oh, they're fine. But at the end of the day, the only time that they are making a real difference is if the community is getting involved. 
and that's where that difference can get measured. And I think also if you look at a vet practice, yeah, do your radius. Fantastic. All right, now you're done with your radius. It's stable. Help the radius next to you. And if you're done, help the radius together. And then eventually everybody's going to be helping everybody and you just create this whole threaded effect where it's just community. Not because there's anything in it for you, but because you've got a quota of how much good to do. <laughs> No, for sure, for sure. And, and, and you know, you also you look at um, hoarders, for example. So, you know, there, there's such a, whatever, the hoarders, collectors, there are many words for these people. Animal welfare is seriously com compromised in these places. But it doesn't start out like that. It's a well-meaning person who rescues a dog and then rescues three, and then can't afford to sterilize, and then has 200. And then what? The SPCA comes in and puts it all down. Um, and I think people need to understand that it's the same as being a vegetarian. Not everybody can be a vegetarian. So do what you can do. And, and that is okay. So if you just, you know, eat one less meat meal, that already is one less animal that dies. So just do what you can. If you can only rescue three dogs, that's fine. Rescue three dogs and then help other people because you've got a skill or a or a passion or time or whatever it is to help many, many animals. But you can't do it by yourself because you're getting too deep and then we need to rescue from the rescuers. Yeah, and then half those dogs will in any way make their way to an SPCA or not an SPCA but a euthanasia. Yes, call it, it's call it, what do we call it, call a spade a spade, um, because that is what happens, and that is when people say adopt, don't shop, you know, all, all that stuff, and fantastic, yes, do that, don't shop from backyard breeders, that's a whole other story, but sure, adopt, but if you can't adopt, donate, if you can't donate, share a Facebook post, if you can't share a Facebook post, tell your neighbour, like, do what you, like you say, do what you can. Yeah. And it's enough. It's enough if you just do what you can. Because you know what? If you look at the, nobody can do all of it. So even if you become a vegan, you know, and you live on a hill somewhere, are you really making a difference? Yes. You're, you're not making it worse. But are you making it better? So how... You know, it, it, there's just it, there is just many ways to do this. So you could be a breeder, but you could also sponsor a hundred spays a year. I feel like that pays you pays back. You know, if if you're doing more good than bad, you're on a positive karma load here. So yeah, yeah. and that's one a spay you. for them. If you spay a puppy or you know a non-profit, that's one of your litter pups every litter. Like if that was, and th do that, do that. That's like a spay per litter or whatever, you know, just do make an impact. And then your conscience will also be less because you, you are being judged in, in the, the mainstream media and we're not discussing the eth efficacy of reading or not reading and because there is need for it. But that's again, a whole different thing of just do something. Just do something. And I mean, there's a big move within the, the, the breeding community that they they don't uh, home their puppies until they're sterilized. 
And look, it may not come from a pure point of like, oh, the love of greater things. It's probably more got to do with the economics of if my genetics go out there, then my puppies lose value. But the bottom line is, it means that at least you are not sending out puppies on top of puppies on top of puppies. So mm. the the impact... What's that the stats for that real quick? Oh, you know what? There's so many of those little things with the kittens and two two cats over the next six years are going to have a 93,000. You know, it's very hard to determine those stats. But the bottom line is it is accumulative because every litter, every bitch in that litter will within a year have at least one litter. Um, so it really, the impact is high, 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 high. For every sterilization that you do, you really are preventing a lot of cruelty before it happens. And really that's what it is. Preventing cruelty once it's happened really is not preventing it. And that's always been my thing, you know, prevent cruelty by rescuing a dog. You really aren't preventing it. It has already suffered. So yeah, you're preventing further cruelty. But placing dogs in safe places, educating, I mean, educating is a big thing. Lots of cruelty in this country is connected to ignorance. Lots of it. And a lot of it isn't. A lot of it is outright cruelty. A lot of it's ignorance. Are you seeing more or less of that these days in terms of cruelty versus negligence? Oh, um, um, yeah, not negligence, you, the other one. You know what? It's a very interesting question, that. And I think it depends what you're looking for. So if you're looking for cruelty, so when you're, when you're in law enforcement, that's how the universe works. You know, you want to see cruelty. Okay, we'll line it up for you. This is what it is. And then you see high impact, cruelty, cruelty, cruelty all the time. Then you, 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 you remove animals and then tomorrow you come back and they've replaced it with another one. And eventually your mind goes, this isn't working. Let's try education. Then when you start doing education, then all of a sudden you just see all of this ignorance, ignorance. And if you do education long enough, you realize that some people can't be trained. And then it takes you back to people are just cruel. So it really depends where you're sitting on the line. I personally don't believe that compassion can be taught, which is very controversial. Um, but rules can be taught. So if you have a dog, it must have water, it must have food, and you can't tie it to a tree. That is a rule, and whether you agree with that or not, that's how it needs to be. But you have to start with education, because if there is a little light of compassion within that child, you could grow that. You could grow that, and you could create a human that would go forth and help more animals. That's so it's a, it's, a, it's a generational thing, then? It's a generational thing and you need to start early. Uh, I did lots of education in my early days and very quickly uh, stopped working on high school children altogether. Um, not because they can't be trained, but because I think that the compassion either exists or doesn't. And so with high school kids, what we do is we create clubs. So you say, okay, this is like... Uh, animal welfare club and kids join and the kids that join join because they have a spark but then you don't yeah. have the disruption of the, the the kids that are already set on their path and you know what not liking animals or loving animals doesn't mean you need to be cruel so those kids can be taught morals and ethics to not damage animals but those are not your animal warriors your animal warriors are born they they that spark yeah comes from the day they, they enter onto the earth plane.
I completely agree with that. I think um, I also talk about how I used to um, do educational talks for a nonprofit organization I used to work for back in the day, um, but used to do educational talks and the little kids, you can see, because the whole world is at their feet, you know, they can be anything they want to be. There's just that, and there's this want for what else is there to do and what is the best thing to do. And if you can, if you can start there and light that fire underneath them and just say, go, you know, and they take that. And because they have to choose to take that, either be like, oh, that's cool. I like animals now. Animals are my buddies. Or they go, I want to make a difference. And that's where your doctors are born. And that's where your nurses are born. And that's where your vets are. Like, that, it's a passion for something that you have. Um, and you grow with that passion. So I completely agree with you there. Um, and in terms of when we teach people the morals and ethics and you know what is right and wrong, um, there, there's something called the five freedoms. Now, I know that a lot of people probably know about the five freedoms. I do still meet people that are like, what is that? So um, would you mind taking us over that real quick in terms of what oh, it so actually the is? Uh, the five freedoms really is, is the basic, basic um, need for animals, the basic requirements. So it came from, uh, from the UK. Uh, in 1960, around there, uh, they there was, a, and it actually started off pertaining to production animals. So there was a committee that said, "Look, we need to look at how these animals can be kept," and they came up with five things: uh, that you have to be free of hunger and thirst, have to be free of pain and disease, um, has to be free of discomfort. So that's like they need to have shelter. Um, need to be able to display normal behavior. Uh, and the fifth one is, help me, what's the fifth one? Oh, shit, no, don't ask me. In any case. Every so, vet so, listening to this go is like shouting it out at their phones right yes. now. Yes, <laughs> and that's this one that is just the same. The bottom line is that the five freedoms are, are they're, they're a nice thing and people throw the, throw the words around, but they're very basic. It, you know, if, if you're telling me that one of the five freedoms is f freedom to display normal behavior, and then you look at a chicken in a battery cage that's living on an A4 piece of paper, how is that? How is that in any way freedom? So I, I very seldom work with the five freedoms. Um, I, I work with what is that animal telling you? Because, look, the five freedoms are not in law. It's not legislated. So it truly doesn't help you to go and say it helps you because you can say, it. you know, there's this, this document. It's a checklist. Yeah, but it's it's not uh, for me personally. You know, you, you want to work with the fact is that that animal is suffering. You can see that that animal is suffering. Um, yeah. And you know why. So, I mean, we talk about, about production animals, but, I mean, I'm talking about an African grey in a cage. Can that animal yeah. display its normal behavior? Absolutely not. And yet that is a fully acceptable thing if you ever try to mm. prosecute somebody for keeping his budgie in a budgie cage. Where will you go? So, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think I think the conversation among, you know, um, suburban pet owners in that regard is starting to change because of the focus of enrichment um, to your breed. Uh, like there's a lot of that going around. So I think in a few years, hopefully the idea of that will start getting bigger and bigger and the advocacy around, you know, your pet is 
prayed for something. If do you do you have a border collie in a little apartment and he never gets out and he never gets to do anything? Is that what that dog is supposed to be doing? Is that his how is his quality of life? Um, is it fantastic for what you know he's bred for? Okay, cool. No, all right, let's change it. So instead of okay, I, I can't find the house, you know, enrich the dog. Find ways where you can do something about it. So, and it starts in your own home because if you take care of your pet, the SDCA doesn't have to come get your pet. Um, so I think educate, I think educating people around that as well is super important. And I think why the animal community is actually on its own slowly doing that good of, hey, that's not right. You should do this. Have you tried a snuffle mat? Have you tried clicker training? Have you tried a uh, fly ball or fast cat, fat cat? Like, for for whatever you have a dog, it was bred for a purpose. Do your research. Uh, if you have an African grey, do your research. Are you aware that this dog will be an inherent? Oh, this dog, basically. But this uh, bird, this big bird, this parrot will be an inheritance piece for your grandchildren because it will probably outlive two generations. Uh, it's you have to you can't you can't just get something because it's cute or oh i can i can look after it and then you take this dusty home with me you know I go, that's a great idea fantastic <laughs> it, yeah, yeah i don't know absolutely and i think that it um yeah so we're back to do what you can do because again sorry no, <laughs> no amount of environment enrichment can make a parrot's life worth living unless it can fly. That yes. is its core need. It is its core need. So, yes, is it better off with all its toys and, and, and being allowed to walk around the house? Absolutely. And, and I mean, you'll, you'll get a lot of flack because people love their parrots. They love them. But you know what? A lot of people love animals, but they have no idea what the animal needs. Or they do, but it's not practically possible to give the animal what it needs. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the the exotic pet trade is a is a whole different ball game. I, I think, yeah. as you say, within normal dogs, um, horses for courses, uh, yeah, and and you need to home where the animal. So, so when when we do adoptions, because I mean through Delta, I do a few adoptions because we do do some rehabilitation. Um, just because I'm able to. Um, and my question to the person that wants to adopt is, what will this dog's job be? And people that. often have no idea what you even mean because they like it because it's fluffy and it's cute. Um, but the question is, what is it? it it's, it's, is its job to sit on your lap and watch TV with you? That's fine then there is a select set of animals that will love to do that. But, you know, when you come to me and you're actually a CrossFit guy who jogs 20 kilometers a day and you want to adopt a pug because you really want something to jog with, that becomes a problem. <laughs> For the uh, pug. Yeah. <laughs> For the Unless pack. you plan on carrying the pug in a backpack all the way on the hike as, you know, a way to back, then exactly. fine, but don't expect it to run with you. And the thing is, animals need a job. All animals need a job. They need a purpose. And even if their purpose is to sit on your lap, but then remember, that is their purpose. So you need to let them do that because that's yeah. what their job is. 
they only it can only do what they can do okay <laughs> yeah. um so in terms of okay um adoption and um rehoming it's are you finding that because i know that it's it's a it's a big topic and we don't have to go too deep on this if it's you know a, a black hole but are you finding that uh, the, the statistics behind adoptions and then having to rescue those dogs back from those adopters or mistreatment within the adoptions. Is that something that happens? Is that something that was more in the past and is becoming less because of education or? So I think that from where I'm sitting and certainly the organizations that I work closely with, there are very few adoption fails uh, anymore because the screening has become a lot more involved. Uh, so I don't think that there's a lot of uh, properly adopted animals. I think the, the, the difference is when you go and buy something or a friend gives you or a puppy for Christmas, obviously those animals are still all circling back to the SPCA and those numbers are the same. That will never change. There's always the Easter bunny rabbits that come back in May. There's always the chickens that come back in May. Uh, the Christmas puppies that come back in February. You know, so you see those trends in in shelters all the time. But I think from a homing, from a homing perspective, I think uh, reputable shelters are doing a really good job at screening homes effectively and making the best possible things that you can. That's interesting because, like, um, I completely agree with you as well. And uh, we got Finn from a, from a breeder and even their kind of their screening process is, is quite intense. Like with the, with, I approached some other breeders and they actually like, they want to meet you before they even show you the dog, uh, the mom, like, who are you? What are you going to do with my dog? So I think the, the responsibility is being taken more seriously by the organizations because they realize that if I don't make sure that this dog gets the right home, it's going to come back or worse. So, um, do you think that, uh, that that some organizations take it too far, though, in terms of the screening process? Yeah, absolutely. And, and interestingly enough, it, uh, my experience is that this is generally within the SPCA um, and, and others, but it comes from a place of trauma. Can I tell you, when you have rescued enough animals to bring them home, to put them down, because there is no place for them to go. You become, a, a, a thing happens chemically in your brain that says that most people are idiots and most people are going to damage your dog. Um, and I think that is what happens. So they, they, it's, it's the, 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 the classic saying of there's a fate worse than death. Absolutely, there's a fate, fate worse worse than death. But I think when you're working in a law enforcement facility and all you're seeing is torture and cruelty and neglect, your understanding of the world becomes that, that people are stupid, they're idiots, and you have to um, block every hole. So you'll go to an SPCA and they will want you to bring a letter from your landlord um, and that, to say that you can have a dog and you want a letter from your doctor that your kid isn't going to become allergic the first time the puppy chews your slippers. And they want letters from the neighbors who are not going to put, because it comes from a place of real, real 
how can I protect this animal? So for me, I feel that that is unfortunate. And I think that a lot of the SPCA screening costs animal lives because mm. people are like, really, I, I want to adopt this animal. I've got a perfect setup, but you're making me jump through all these hoops and it's taking you three weeks to, to get it. Uh, and or you become that, rude with me because somehow it's my problem now or I'm trying exactly. to help you. <laughs> and that's it. And then people go to a breeder and they get a dog there. And that dog probably lives a very happy life with this person. Um, so for me, it's, yes, I, I think people get super frustrated with SBCAs but they have to just understand that that is trauma. It, it's absolute trauma that causes an organization to try and protect up to, because they have, they don't know who you are. So you know that you've had dogs all your life and you're going to love this dog to be, but they don't. They only know that yesterday they confiscated 15 dogs that were all starving to death and eating each other. It, it becomes, so when you leave uh an SPCA, it takes about two and a half years before you rewire in your head where you start looking at people and thinking, maybe this person will be okay. Maybe there's hope. <laughs> yes. And, and, and it's from, a, and I speak from experience where when you're in it, all you can see is that at least if it's dead, it's not suffering dead it's not suffering because all you see is suffering 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 and once you then see for me i, I remember a, a very classical uh, thing many years ago i'd left the spca and i did a pre-home inspection because you obviously you do for for a, a kitten that i'd rescued and i got there there was no perimeter fence um it was a a, a single lady there was no money it, it would have failed an SPCA adoption on a hundred, but she was so kind and she, everything about the person made me sure that this cat would be okay. And I heard that cat, it was a kitten at that stage. Um, and it was probably one of the best homes I ever did. I, I get the, I mean, they don't have money. They don't. And, and then, you know, the SPCA would say, well, she can't afford veterinary care and that animal is going to suffer. And that is true. That is true. But the reality is she was going to get a kitten anyway. She yeah. was going to get a kitten. She, she, she will not eat to feed that cat. It is her best companion. I have never looked back and thought, oh, oh I will do this. And, and touch yeah. wood, the cats never needed veterinary treatment and and I also said to her, you know, if that ever happens, you contact me and I will help you. We will facilitate that. There are people out there that if you put a little thing up to say, this kitty needs help, people will put money in there and you can get it fixed. But, you know, I think on a, an individual, this is one kitten that I had. To, when you're sitting with 300 animals that are moving through your shelter every month, you have to have rules, have to have a line in the sand because otherwise you know what happens it becomes a they didn't give me the dog because they racist or yeah this is, so unless there's a, a rule that says this works for everybody so yeah I, I i urge people to just sort of 
grit your teeth. I know it's a it's an awful process, but I don't think there's any other way that the SPCA can do it and ensure that those animals are not rescued in a month's time by mm. the inspector because it was a bad match. And I think more often it's because it's not because there's no fence. It's because you've put the wrong dog with the wrong family. That's where the problem comes in. So those initial meet and greet, it's critical. The dog needs to like the person and the person needs to like the dog. If there's no connection there, then you're already on a wicket to nowhere. Yeah, exactly. And you also have this trust in the person that if anything, if there is nothing else for you to do and there is no one who can help at the very least do the right thing for this dog, like that it has to come back to that and you have to be able to look at this person who's wanting to adopt this animal and go, I know that like they, they'll do that because of who they are, not of what because of what they have. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Like, End of life is a, is a big issue, is a big, big issue because there, there's a whole two schools of thought. So there are the, there are the people and the religions and the mindsets that go, it's an old dog. It must go through the dying process. It's what needs to happen. And then there's a, a whole school of thought that says you have to end the suffering and it's a hard one. It, it, <laughs> it's, there's not a real answer to that, but you need to just know that within you, the person that you are entrusting this animal with won't allow the animal to suffer. I think everybody needs to go up to their vets and give them a hug uh, because like, you don't have to make those decisions every day. They do. And the team, not just the vets, the whole team, the vet nurses who support the vets endlessly throughout the nights, the, the animal health technicians, or just the, the, the receptionist that has to deal with everybody being upset about everything the whole time at any organizational vet practice. And we go in there and we're like, yeah, but you didn't do this. It's your fault. It's all of this. They are doing the best that they can, people. Like, we're not talking about ethics or anything like that, but I mean, if that vet is in surgery trying to take a bone out of a dog's trachea he's doing his best man <laughs> yeah there's so a big kind. there's a big um movement within the veterinary community because we are seeing more and more uh, veterinarians and veterinary support um, personnel committing suicide um, it, it's oh becoming there are actually support groups specifically for that, because again, you're dealing with an individual who um, is is working from a place of passion. So when they lose a patient, you know, you lost your dog, and that's really sad. He may have lost your dog and another dog that he's been treating for the last six years, plus a you know something else, and then they take a lot of abuse because people expect vets to work for free. Yeah. They, they, they're like, oh, well, you know, why are you charging me this money? I thought you cared about animals. And I think it is an absolute atrocious, atrocious mindset. You would never expect your doctor to treat you for free because your doctor studied seven years and has a family and equipment and staff. And so they can't. If they were to treat everybody animal for free, they would close down and there would be no vets. So, yeah, so the vets often end up becoming suicidal because they 
can't help everybody and they've got to make decisions. So yeah, you make a very valid point that that the veterinary community takes a hell of a lot of strain and, and they don't become vets because they want to make money. I promise you there are easier no. ways to make money. I had a vet that told me that the, all the vets who started out in vet school to make money dropped out by third year because you don't get, you don't finish vet, like veterinary qualifications and you go, all right, let's make some money. <laughs> You can't make money. The bottom line is people think that vets make money because you've got a, you know, you've you got a 15,000 Rand account and you're going 15 times 20 patients and you're doing the maths. It doesn't work like that. The veterinary drugs are hellish expensive. The facilities, so there aren't rich vets. If you look around, the vet, the vets that have money have done other stuff. They have a side business, they're selling dog food. That's <laughs> money they're not making money from veterinary even the specialists they don't make money you know you look at at uh, specialist vets that charge crazy amounts because they run a 24-hour hospital you know you're running two sets of staff yeah because you've got a night team and a day team so yes when you take your dog to a 24-hour vet for a vaccination their prices are geared to run two teams. So don't do it. Use yeah. your specialist vet for your specialist stuff. I mean, unless money is not an issue, then absolutely. But if if you're battling to get a vaccination done, for heaven's sakes, don't get it done at your 24-hour vet. Go to the little small practice on the corner because they have two staff members that they have to support and they can have their prices at that level. But yeah. It's a sad thing for vets, unfortunately. I think also another way that veterinary practices might be able to save a lot of headaches for themselves is when people come in wanting to sterilize their pets and instead of them saying, um, no, sorry, we can't do it for free or sorry, we can't help you for a discounted price, they should have by the telephone at the reception a number they can call for the Delta Project SA going, hey, we need a spay. Um, can you help? And then... I don't know. I'm, tell me if I'm getting this correctly. Like you guys pay a post to Facebook and say, guys, there's a man, he's got a litter of puppies that he picked up on the side of the road, but he doesn't have the money to fix it. Please help. And vet, veterinary care gets to that dog because of community and that owner can keep that dog that he loves so much and will take care of, just can't. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So um, the Let's Spay essay, um, that, that is an initiative that's been running just over a year now. And that has taken such, it's gained such momentum because what, what's happened is veterinary practices that are prepared or able to do discounted spays have put up their hands and they say, they'll say, okay, well, this month we'll spay for 600 rand. It gets advertised and then people can go in their area. So all over the country, there are these, veterinary practices that have a, a welfare component to them for whatever reason it may just be because they actually have sponsorships so that people can sponsor uh so somebody says to clip event i will pay for 10 rural sterilizations and then then clip event will do them and they they pay for them at cost um so yeah and most spcas will do have an almoning system so if you go there and you qualify, you can have a sterilization done uh, at a better rate. 
Um, the oh, wow. problem with, with almoning systems, unfortunately, is that you could be earning 50,000 rand, but you have debt of 40,000 oh. rand. So you can actually still not be able to afford a spay, even though you are in a higher uh, earning. You're driving a Merc or... And, and you know what? Unfortunately, after COVID, that has been a, a real, real thing because people have bought houses and they haven't. And I'm, I'm talking, you know, you've bought a 7 million rand house. Then COVID came, you either lost your job or your boss said, sure, sure, you can come back, but I need to cut your salary by 80%. And we are seeing so much of that because, I mean, I do quite a lot of work in, in Santon. Uh, and people coming in, driving the good car, living in the good home, but has no cash flow because the, the, they qualified for this bond of this salary. And all of a sudden, that salary That's gone. has taken a 20% drop. So, and the, those are the people that battle because they don't really qualify. They're not SASA pensioners, they don't live in a poor suburb but they want their animals sterilized. And I think with Let's Pay SA, they have gone down that road where they're like, just get it spayed. Just yeah. get it spayed. Because even if you live in Sampton, your dog is going to have puppies and you're going to give those puppies either to the SPCA, to euthanase, or to the gardener where they will make more puppies. And so just stop the cycle. Just stop it there. So people must speak. There, there are certainly organizations out there that can assist you. And it's not for free. You have to pay. Because the minute you start doing things for free in this country, everybody does this. Takes that advantage. And, and learns no responsibility. So, yes, the animal is still your responsibility. You will still have to have a financial burden to it. But there are people that will be able to support you, that will say, look, I'll pay the difference. Yeah, or I've known people that say, "Listen, I have ten rand, but I can I can pay you in three installments, and I'll pay everything back." That kind of thing, like yeah. where and and this that shows willingness, it shows commitment, it shows you know initiative. So do you, so because sorry, I wanted to ask you about COVID. So have you seen an incline in um, dogs, unspayed dogs, since twenty twenty, or and um, uncared for dogs? No, you know what? Is it? It, it is the same. So the more work you do, the more animals you see. So if you if you go out and you look, you find them. If you sit, you're like, oh, things are so much better. We're really not seeing so much of it anymore. I don't think there's a change. I think the, the change is that people can't afford their animals anymore. So you are seeing uh, more surrendered animals where people are bringing them in and saying, look, I just can't actually keep this dog anymore. Mm. Uh, not so much now, but sort of immediately after COVID, there was a lot of, you know, we yeah, just, we, I I've just lost my job and I can't cope with this. I just can't. But, yeah. So now it's, it's more stabilized, but sterilization, cruelty, all of those things, I think it depends on the work you do. Where you go, you will find it. And if you dig hard enough, you will find it forever. And you need to just fix what you can and know that somebody else will pick up another block of this puzzle. Just fix your place. Mm -hmm.
Yes, exactly. And if you're if you're a person that sees a stray dog next to the road and it's like, I'm going to leave it because I don't want to pick it up and take it to the SPCA because something's going to happen to it anyway. So what you can do then is pick the dog up, take it to the SPCA, get in contact. If it's a Boston Terrier, get in touch with Boston Terrier Rescue and say, hey, listen, there's a stray dog. I've checked up on it. Like it's been there for two weeks. It's not been claimed. So it's a stray rescue now. Please help this dog. And more often than not, SPCAs do get in touch with these organizations when these dogs aren't claimed. Like, more often than not, they do, like, collaborate with people to, to rescue the dog and post to Facebook. And those Facebook groups tag the organizations so the word does get out there. And I think it just comes back to the SPCA without them. Like, the, 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 there's no one else in South Africa, correct me, but I do believe this is true, that has the jurisdiction to confiscate animals like the SBCA does and has the like the jurisdiction the way the SBCA can intervene with things. So so look, in terms of legislation, there are several organizations that actually have got authorization. So um, how it works is in order to get authorization, authorization is not issued by the SPCA. Uh, in order for you to law enforce, you need to have a magistrate give you a stamp and say, you may be an inspector. So there are other organizations that certainly can law enforce, um, but they are in uh, they're a very, very small number of organizations that are able to. Uh, for the most part, it's SPCA, Animal Anti-Cruelty League, they have a uh, inspectorate section. Um, and some of the bigger places wet nose have inspectors, but it's really it, it, it's limited. Um, but I've also come to realize that only about 20% of animal welfare involves law enforcement. 80% yeah. of it is other stuff. It's other stuff. You don't need to be an inspector. I was an inspector for years and years and years. I was a senior inspector. I was a chief inspector. And when I left the SPCA, that was my biggest uh, anxiety was around the fact that I lost my badges. Because in my head, I thought, how do I give you the power it? to change things? How am I going to fix it? How am I going to fix it? If I, if I see a cruelty case, how will I be able to? I don't have badges. I, I can't go in. I can't enforce. But can I tell you what? I've come to realize that those badges were far more of a handicap. Than oh, really? <laughs> yes. Because most people you can talk to. You can go in and you can say, I see you have a problem. Can I help you? And 80% of people are like, thank you so much. But oh you walk in with badges and they say, go away. You're going to kill my dog. I'm fine. Everything is okay. But you come in in your little skirt and you say, can I help you? And you can. And when you get to those individuals that say, go away, it's my dog. I'll kick it if I want. There are other people with badges. You phone them and you say, I have tried. But, I mean, honestly, I think I've been without badges probably for 10 years. And in that time, I've maybe needed the SPCA to come in and actually law enforce a handful of times. Most of the time, you can, you can get it done. You can get the animal off. You can get it surrendered. You can get it helped. You can get it spayed. There is a vast amount of stuff that you can do without the badges. Yeah. Awesome. 
it's not that hard. So people can make it. And I say it's not that hard. Please don't. Like, I'm not saying what you do isn't insane. <laughs> I, I actually just want to tell whoever's listening. It's not that hard to actually do something. Talk to someone. Ask them. Be a neighbor. Be a friend. Do some good. <laughs> and, and my big thing is there is never nothing that you can do. So my biggest bugbear in the world is when you phone an organization, you say, listen, there's a guy selling puppies on the corner of William Nickel. And they say, sorry, you know, it's not against the law. There's nothing we can do. There okay. is always something you can do. It may not be law enforcement. It may not be what you want to do, but you can fix that situation. So people also mustn't give up. If you feel like an animal's in trouble and you lay a complaint and nothing gets done, don't just be like, oh, well, that's what it is. If you feel that that animal's in trouble, there are other people that you can get hold of and you can say, look, I've sent out people. They're not doing anything. Because also remember, especially with law enforcement, it's quite hard because you have to work within the law. So what we feel is 100% wrong may not be written like that in the law. You know, people are like, the dog is tied on a chain. Yes, the dog oh, yeah, is that's not illegal. <laughs> there's no law that says you can't. So it, it's fantastic. I mean, the SPCA and lots of organizations make up laws as they go along. Oh, it's illegal to do this and it's legal to do that. But you really, when, when push comes to shove, there's no law that says you may not chain a dog. It's got to do with how it's chained. Yes. So if it's sitting on a 30 centimeter chain in the sun, 100% you will have something. But you're not prosecuting them for tying the dog. You're prosecuting them for how. For neglect. So you can either fix that. So if the dog's on a chain, you can put a shelter, you can make it longer, you can confiscate the dog. You, there, there are many, many things you can do. Mm. But don't ever take that. There's nothing we can do. There's always something. We've just got to find how to make it better. Even if it's just a little bit. Yeah. One step at a time. I love that. I love that, that it's also it, everything just comes back to being a community. And that's literally like the whole point of everybody who follows Finn's Instagram knows. Like that's the whole point of this whole thing is because we have to get back to giving to each other, to helping each other, to speaking to each other. And actually then by doing that, helping those around us. So I love it. Thank you again for sitting with me today. Goodness gracious. This has not gone at all at how we planned it to, but I love it. <laughs> so much for those questions. I know. They're just they're just suggestions. <laughs> I have to I'm gonna have to start prefacing everything with this may be a tangent episode. <laughs> <laughs> Be forewarned. Parents hide your kids. Um, so, like, okay, you said, okay, you guys don't take donations. So, Delta Project, are you guys just in the background with the glue that is holding everything together? Can people help you in some way? Um, how do they help you? Okay, so uh, absolutely. So, obviously, we have uh, rehabilitation of animals from time to time. So, People will, will, you know, give us a bag of dog food, but it's it's very much uh, project specific. So I think you can follow the Delta project on Facebook um, and 
the projects come up there. So we'll say, right, we're doing an outreach in Richards Bay on the 27th of August and we need the following things. And it could be, often it's people food, you know, we need like a cupcake to keep the, the vet standing for a 12-hour shift or we need dog food or we need transport. So I think that's what it is. We, we don't have a bank account where you can put money in, but when the projects run, we will run specific things to say, look, we need to get 2,000 rand because we've got to move a pig from Springs to like Durban because it's been rehomed. And then we get the money and we get it across there. But there's no pool of money. I don't sit on money because I don't believe that we need to sit on money because there's yeah. enough money around. When you've got a project, you put up your hand and people say, yeah, let's help this go forward. Exactly. And I, when, I, when I saw how quickly people pulled together to help Skylar, one of my previous guests, uh, get her um, multiple service dog, they met two weekends ago. It's the cutest thing. Um, I was just astounded by how the community pulled together. I and mean, she messaged me. She's like, I don't know how this has happened so quickly and I'm I'm sitting here mind blown. I had a total of 200 followers when I started this thing and like together people sharing their story, people just, it gets there, the money gets there. If where there's a will, there's a way. So I love that. Okay, cool. So whenever there's a project, please do let us know, let me know so that I can let everybody else know. Um, and then we'll definitely help with that. Um, I wanted to ask you about one of the dogs on your Facebook because I have been looking at it, but I actually haven't seen like an update of it. So I wanted to ask you about it. The the black dog, I think he had mange. Duke. Yes, Duke. Baby Duke. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. Do you want a background on him or you just want to know where he's at? Well, that and yeah, I mean, guys, you have to hear this. It's the cutest freaking story. Um, well, I think it's like what it's becoming into, but it's, <laughs> sorry, I see the end product. I'm like, yes, it's going to get there. Like, I love the recovery photos. <laughs> so, so Duke was, uh, we suspect that he, he was, he lived with, with somebody somewhere on and he got a very, very severe mange, uh, probably one of the worst cases I've ever seen. Um, and he was dumped on a main road. So he lived on that main road for an extended period and people would see him. He looked like a, a werewolf. So people oh would goodness. report and they'd say, there's a werewolf running on the, the 511 and you'd go out and there'd be nothing. Um, and eventually he just got to such a point of exhaustion that his feet were bleeding and he couldn't actually run away anymore. And they managed to catch him. So Delta Project went out and we brought him in to the facility um, he was, you couldn't get near him. He was growling. He was petrified. Um, but yeah, he's, he's made a beautiful recovery. He turned out to be a chow, which was oh, wow. amazing. Because when we saw him, we were like, who knows what this is? We'll just. Could uh, be a lab. Could be yeah, actually anything. on the photos that people had taken, uh, we thought that he was a, a puppy just because of how he, he looked. looked when he very arrived. small. He's, he's a three-year-old. He's an adult child, but he was emaciated. He was his feet were bleeding, um, and yeah. So so he's made a beautiful recovery, um, but we are still looking for a home for him. He uh, is quite a dominant male, so he would go well with like a nice big female or male. Uh, got very strong hunting drive because I think he had to fend for himself, so he won't go well with like cats and chickens and things that run 
Um, and that's what it is, you know. So again, this is the adoption process. I've had hundreds of applicants for him, but they've got a little Yorkie. And I can't risk it. I can't risk him hurting another animal. So um, we holding thumbs. There is a very nice rehabilitation facility out uh, in KZM who are looking to take him on and put some work into him with the smaller animals to see if we can bring down his hunt drive on the smaller animals. Um, but yeah, Duke is happy as Larry. Um, he, he, one of my cats went into his area the other day, um, but he, he sort of went up to her and she said, if you touch me, I will kill you. And he said, sorry, ma'am. Um, but it's not a, you know, it could have been very different. So yeah, Dukey is up for adoption and maybe, I don't know how this works, but maybe you can share the video of him. And if there are people who are keen, uh, they can certainly contact us. Um, in my head, I think he belongs to a woman who's recently got divorced and the husband took all the animals. And she needs something that sits on her lap and watches TV with her and will kill anybody who comes near her. In my head, that's where he ends up. I'll definitely put that in the description for it. <laughs> no, it's looking for, it'll be like a Tinder bio. <laughs> <laughs> He's lovely. He's lovely. He loves me so much. Uh, and I specifically tried for him not to bond with me because he can't stay with me because if he stays with me, it means I can't help another animal. So he stays with me until he finds a home, but then I have a gap for another because my biggest fear is that I end up as a crazy cat hoarding woman with like 500 dogs living on my property because I'm this far away from that. So you have already started with adopting the miners. It's, it's <laughs> true. That's true. So yeah, so I have to find a place, but he, he's lovely and he talks and he, and he's cuddly, um, but he's hunting driver strong. And I just, I don't want to set him up for failure. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. Well, I guess it was because he was out so long. Are chows by nature a very big hunting instinct dogs? I don't know. No, they, they are. They don't do well with small animals. They, you know, they, they're one of the Nordic breeds. So they, they go into the like husky, those people. Uh, it's yeah. fascinating because if you Google what is one of the best dogs to have at home that's like aloof and just chill, um, a chow is on the list somehow. Like I was, I was like, no, this should not be anywhere near here. Do you, have you met that dog? <laughs> yeah, chows, chows are, 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 are people who love chows love chows, but they are they different. They not that they they don't signal the same as other dogs. So a German oh. Shepherd will tell you if you come in here, I'm going to bite you, and you'll be like, okay, well then we won't do that. Chows don't signal. So they stand there and then you walk up to them and then they bite you. And then you're like, hey, dude, what was that about? And he's like, well, did you and not see me? Being, um, split personality. Yeah. So, so they are they, they are more of, they are a more complex dog. It's, it's not a first dog owner kind of dog, um, but they are fiercely loyal. Um, yeah. Long hair. So that is often a drawback for people. But also long hair. People love that. So. Exactly. It's like a fluffy cloud. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I definitely wouldn't put them into a like first pet owner. No. Yeah. But they are, they, they are aloof 
in that they don't need a lot of attention, but fiercely loyal, fiercely loyal. And also probably not the best dog to get if you have toddlers, just throwing them. Yeah, not going <laughs> to They'll be loyal, but you can't check out if the 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 the, the kid who's pulling on the ears is annoying him because he's not sickening. Yeah. So. yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't put him with with kids. Uh, he's not going to jog with anybody. I can tell you that much. That's why I'm telling you the bio is he needs a divorced divorce, woman who needs divorce, an emotional support dog. He'll be right up there. I love it. The emotional support ghost of the five eleven. Yeah, and look, he's five already, so she needs some time so that she doesn't start a new relationship in like this whole uh, rebound phase. So by then he'll be like eight, and then she can get a husband at that stage because he'll be an old dog and he won't bite her. And yeah. you know, it works out for everybody. At the very least, give it this: what's the the, the six 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 rule? The six days, six weeks, six months for the dog to chill in and for you to get to know the dog before you even consider dating again. That. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, I love it. Marissa, thank you for sitting with me. I feel like we have to do this again because there's so much we can talk about because you're just this infinite pool of knowledge because you've been in it for your whole life. So, <laughs> Literally. Um, I love it. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I will put all your tags below. I'm going to request all the videos and photos that you want to send me that I can put on here like during editing. Um, so spam me away spam me with little duke and we'll put him on instagram and um thank you everyone for joining today so much and um we'll see you next time